Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to advise companies across industries about the Gen Z consumer and employee, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest worked as an award-winning management consultant who was named as one of the top 25 consultants by Consulting Magazine for her thought leadership in retail. But before I introduce you to Hannah Ben Shabbat, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's newsletter that features career advice, insights, and inspiration gleaned from hundreds of interviews I've done with professionals like Hannah in dozens of different industries. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at Time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my cappuccino-loving consultants, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Hannah Ben Shabbat, the founder of Gen Z Planet, a research, speaking, and advisory firm helping leaders across sectors and industries to prepare for the next generation of culture creators, employees, and consumers. Hannah is also the author of the recently published book, Gen Z 360, Preparing for the Inevitable Change in Culture, Work, and Commerce. Before founding Gen Z Planet, Hana was a partner and board member of the global management consulting firm A.T. Kearney, where she worked for almost 20 years, co-leading the firm's Global Consumer Institute and advising clients around the world on issues of corporate strategy and organizational effectiveness. Prior to working at A.T. Kerna, Hannah held marketing positions at several Israeli tech companies. She is a sought-after speaker and commentator on Gen Z consumer behaviors and trends. Hannah, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Totally. And thank you for having me. So exciting to see you almost in person. (laughs) It's almost. It's the next best thing. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I know you're from Israel originally. What type of coffee do you drink in when you're in New York City, which is where you are now? Are I, actually, you- <laughs> I actually always drink Italian coffee. I love Ili and that's what I always drink. <laughs> but there's such great Israeli coffee too. There is, but I still, I still like my Ili. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll let that slide. Hannah, 
I thought perhaps we could begin first by defining for our listeners, young and old, who are Gen Z and how they're different from the millennials, from the Gen Xers, and from my generation. I'm at the very, very end of baby boomers. Sure. Let's first define Gen Z is everyone who was born from 1998 to 2016. And they are distinct in, I would say, three or four aspects. The first one is diversity. With 48% minorities, Gen Z is the most diverse generation to ever live in this country. But I think it's important to understand that diversity is not just a demographic statistic or a data point about this generation. It is a cultural lens through which they view the world and something that they bring as an as expectation when they join the workforce or where they deal with one. So that's one thing. The second thing is obvious is the technology. Gen Z is the most digitally connected generation. 87% of Gen Z had access to cell phone before they were 15 years old. And that's, of course, affected every aspect of their lives, how they learn, how they process information, how they interact with one another, how they form relationships, and how they and what they expect also from, from future employers. So that's uh, that's I would say these are the two main. The third thing I would say about Gen Z is that, you know, I always say that Gen Zers are the kids of the recession and the graduates of the global pandemic. And as such, they really experienced two major events that shaped their lives and shaped their attitudes towards money. And that's, again, something that really affects how they view future jobs, uh, how they going, you know, that's fully committed to secure their financial future. And that is a very fundamental uh, aspect of who they are. And the last thing, which is a result of the connectivity, is when you are connected constantly through your phone and social media, you experience the world and world event in a very visceral way, which is very different than what you and I have experienced. We saw something on TV one day and it was over and we knew that something big happened, but we didn't live it 24-7 like they live today. And I think that exposure um, is driving them to ask questions and to wonder why so many issues that persisted for years are still on the table. Look just what's happening today. And it's something that not only driving them to ask questions, but also driving them to take action. And that's what we see with a lot of Gen Zers, you know, driving big movements. I guess the, the most well-known is the climate change movement with Greta Thunberg. But there are a lot of grant work that is done in communi- at community level, at school level, of kids who really want to change the world and make the world a better place. And they are very committed to ask the question and drive change. So I would say these are the main identifying the characteristics of this generation. Thank you so much. And we should also add that, and I got this data point from your book, that there are about 78 million Gen mm-hmm. Zers. That right. makes up about 25% of the U.S. population today. And we're doing this interview at the very beginning of May 2022. How did that's you get- right? And by the way, I would, if you want to add the the size of the generation globally, we have 2.5 billion Gen Zers, so they are one third of the world population. So it's truly a big power. 
That's stunning. That really is stunning. How did you get really interested in researching this cohort? Yeah, so it's kind of, it, I would say it was a, a bit of a journey to get to get to this point. As you mentioned in the opening for the podcast, I spent 20 years as a management consultant and I started my career when, we, when millennials started to come on board. And I saw many of my clients truly struggling to understand the millennials. The millennials did not fit the mold of what was thought to be a good employee or they didn't follow the life stage patterns that, you know, marketing people used to think about. You know, you get married at a certain age, you buy a house at a certain age. And millennials came and just kind of broke all these assumptions that people had about behaviors and what young people are doing or wanting. And there were so many trial and errors, trying to figure out how to fit them in the workplace, how to create the right programs. And I would say that even till today, some organizations are still struggling to understand millennials. And so many opportunities were lost because of that lack of understanding of the generation. And as we got to the beginning of Gen Z coming of age, I thought we have a really important uh, opportunity here to get things right this time with Generation Z and and just help companies and an organization to think differently on this new generation and be open to the changes that they bring instead of trying to fit them into an existing mold and hope that it's going to work because it won't. Well, speaking of existing molds, there was another part to my earlier question that I forgot to follow up on. And Uh that was, so how does Gen Z differ Uh from millennials, from Gen Xers and baby boomers? I think there there is one thing, which is just context. And I believe that previous generation had lived in a much stable world than it is today. Because if you just see how many things Gen Zers have to deal with since they were born in 1998 until today, it's actually stunning. Usually we define a generation as a group of people who experience one or two major big events, like it's the Vietnam War or it's Berlin Wall collapse or it's September 11th. With Gen Z, it's just like the list is just going on and on. Global recession, global pandemic, gun, uh, gun violence in schools, and you know some landmark elections since '98 till 2020. So all these things are affecting their psyche just in a very different way. Then and give them a sense of change is the only constant. There is no stability. So just by virtue of the context, there is a big difference. I think the other thing which I see a big difference is how they react to what's happening around them, to the world around them. And especially when we compare to millennials. Millennials, they came out of college, they experience the you know the challenges of having a huge student loan. And their reaction was, okay, we have to be careful. I'm going to go back and live with my parents. I am not going to put my money in stock market. In fact, there was a study that just came out a couple of years ago that shows that millennials keep most of their money in cash. They are afraid to invest because they are afraid of this catastrophic event that's going to wipe out their savings. So they were more risk averse, more cautious 
about starting a, a committee to adult lives. And I think with Gen Z, we see almost the opposite. They are more willing to take risks. They are more willing to think, oh, I want to secure my, my financial future. Therefore, I need to find a pathway to own a home. I need to find a pathway to get, to get these kind of jobs. And you didn't see that with the millennial. I mean, many Gen Zers right now before, because the pandemic are back with their parents, but they will go out the minute they have the feeling that they got a secure job and they can, they can go and do that. So I think it's more kind of how you react to things is, is one major aspect of them. It's fascinating. Before we dig more into Gen Z and your book, mm-hmm. Gen Z 360, and specifically what I want to focus on among them, the kinds of skill that mm-hmm. are going to be most valuable for Gen Z to cultivate before getting into the workforce. I'd like to get into a bit more about you, Hannah, mm-hmm. and your career journey, because that's what Time for Coffee is all about. So let's flash back to when you were in school as an undergrad. You grew mm-hmm. up in Israel, which means after you graduated high school, you had mandatory military service and you became an officer in the Israeli army before you went to university. But once you finished your service, you attended Tel Aviv University and you majored in political science with a minor in psychology. Mm-hmm. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated, Hannah? I did not. And I think it's kind of, it's a very interesting journey because when graduated from, from high school, my thinking was that I'm going to go to the military and then I'm going to be a doctor. And that was really my life plan. <laughs> and uh, after I finished my military service, I applied to schools and I was just, uns- I-, I was unsuccessful in getting into medical schools. In hindsight, many years later, when I had the opportunity to deal with some medical issues, it became very clear to me that I would never, ever be able to stick a needle in anyone. So I could definitely not be a doctor. But at that point, it was very disappointing. And then I thought, okay, what I'm really interested in, I still... I'm still interested in psychology. I'm still interested in what happened in the world. And political science looks uh, very interesting. And I thought I will take that. And potentially, I was thinking that I may continue studying second degree in psychology. But in Israel, it is very common for people during undergrad to work while you study. So I joined this company, which was really a startup before startups were very fashionable in technology. And we were distributing computer storage solutions. And I was doing that in parallel to my study. And I got the business bag. And I just thought, you know, I really like what I'm doing. It was a fantastic school for me because it was completely not what I thought I'm going to do in my life. But then here I am, found something that I was good at and I was enjoying. It has a combination of analytical skills and creative skills. And those were always the two things I was looking for in everything I've done. So, so when I graduated from university, I thought that the next step is going to be an MBA. <laughs> So what was your first job and how did you get it? Or did you go directly into grad school to get your MBA? 
Yes. Yeah, so my first job was actually the job I had while I was doing my first degree with this startup company. I think I just got it because I knew someone who was looking to have students working part-time while studying. And I thought, you know, this is really a great thing because I'm going to learn a lot. And this is not like a typical student job. It actually has serious responsibility and opportunity to do big things. So I just went for it. And I was there for the whole duration of my first degree. Fantastic. So was it then after you graduated that you went to Rotterdam School of Management to get your MBA? Yes. So so I went say I went to Rotterdam and that was also, you know, back then MBA programs were very popular. I think more popular than they are today even. And Everyone was actually going, if you wanted to study abroad, people were looking at American programs. But it just happened that during those years, we're talking 1992, 1993, it was just as the European market changed in a very significant way. All the Eastern European markets were opening up, the, you know, the fall of the communist regime in Russia. I mean, it's just crazy to think about it today, considering everything that's what's happening around us. And I just thought it's going to be great to do a European MBA because there are going to be all these opportunities in Eastern Europe. And it was really appealing to me at the time. So, so I decided to go to Rotterdam and do my MBA there. And, uh, and that really was the beginning of my international career journey. And that is when you began in your management consulting work. Not yet. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so after, after I graduated from Rotterdam, I, and this is again, maybe a lesson for people who are listening. I was obsessed when I was in school with the idea of becoming a management consultant. And I went to several interviews and companies were really picking me up, which was very encouraging. But I never, I never actually got an offer from a consulting firm. And there were lots of reasons for that. I was a foreigner. I, I didn't speak a local languages fluently. And I didn't have the immigration status to actually be employed. So I thought, you know, this is all not going to go anywhere. And then, out of, you know, out of the blue, a friend of mine from university who was living in Brazil at the time, called me and said, you know, there is this Israeli company that is based in Brussels and they're looking for marketing people. You should really apply. And she gave me a phone number to who to talk. So then that was my first job. So I actually joined an Israeli company based in Brussels and I became their marketing director for Europe. Marketing, technology, equipment to the graphic art and the printing industry. Did you know anything about marketing? Yes, I, because I had my first uh, experience of, in the startup where basically I did everything. I did sales, I did marketing, I did design of packaging. I, I, it was just, that was the great thing about that experience, that it was so all-encompassing. And I guess they were looking for someone who just came from an MBA program and I studied marketing. So I basically went into it and I grew into the role and it was, it was actually a phenomenal role. And how long were you there, Hannah, before you moved into management consulting? For three years. And how did you get your foot in the door? It was actually very funny. One day I came home and I had in my mailbox this beautiful booklet from A.T. Carney. 
and it says, now you are two years after your MBA and have you considered management consulting? Have you considered what is your worth in the market? And we are having this program of hiring people with MBA with two years of experience, especially in areas of marketing. So I applied and it was really like, like applying again all, all over again to a business school with seven essays and all these kind of things. And there was a big event with you know, people watching you, interacting. And, and this time it worked. So I, I did have the offer and then I moved to London a year later to join the London office. And eventually you were promoted to co-lead the firm's Global Consumer Institute. And you were advising clients all around the world on issues of corporate strategy and organizational effectiveness. Can you give us an example, Hannah, of how you use the intellectual property, I'm guessing, that was created Mm -hmm. in the Global Consumer Institute to advise clients on strategy and organizational effectiveness? Yeah, so I think these are two different things. So advising the clients was something that I was doing from day one. And you just progress with the role until you become a partner where you have responsibility for a set of clients, etc. And in addition to that, I was doing the Global Consumer Institute. And these are two, two different things. So the Global Consumer Institute objective was to really do research that identified what are the big trends that we are seeing with consumer behaviors and in the consumer market, in the retail market, that we can take to our clients and say, hey, this is what's happening. And this is kind of in addition to advising them on on big issues. But I can give you an example of exactly what you asked about. In 2012, the market just started to look to move into e-commerce in categories where we didn't think before that it would be possible. Like, for example, in the beauty industry. And we did this study and we came up with some really uh, important messaging to the market. And we said, people will buy beauty online. It's, It's happening. It's going to happen way early before everyone actually was thinking about it. And we took that to some clients and we were able to say, we think this is where it's heading. It's good if you start thinking about it right now. And that kind of lead to advising clients on on that particular particular topic. So that's kind of one way when the two aspects of my work intersect. And could you give us a sense as to how your impression of management consulting, what it would be like when you were a student, how that matched up or didn't match up with the reality of what you found once you got it inside the the industry? I would say it matched perfectly. And because the way I always saw management consulting, even as a student, it's a place where you're going to have opportunities to tackle big problems of clients and help your client solve these problems. And you're never going to stay in one place or on one client for too long. So this problem is going to change. And that's how you learn and that's how you grow. And for me, that was really appealing because I already dreaded the idea that I'm going to do something forever in the same place and exactly the same role 
for years and years and years. And this was just, okay, I'm the same company, but the clients are different, the assignments are different. And it's just fascinating. And in that aspect, it totally meets my expectations. So in 2019, after you had been at A.T. Kearney for just about 20 years, Mm -hmm. I now see the common thread between the Global Consumer Institute and the firm that you created, Gen Z Planet. Why did you want to start your own firm? I wanted to start my own company because I felt like I maximized what I could achieve within the organization. And that is, you know, I led the beauty and luxury practice. I I was on the board of, I, I sat on our board of directors and I just thought, you know, I could continue doing this for another 10 years or till retirement. And is this really what I want to do? I think also there is an, there was an element, more personal element of lifestyle. Consulting is a very demanding lifestyle, which I think it's great when you are younger, you kind of go with the flow, you can travel everywhere. But I think when you get to a certain point in your life, you really don't want to be in airports and hotels and be in three cities every, every single week of the month. So, so I think everything kind of came together. And I had this idea of Gen Z. And I think the other thing, one of the things that I learned during my 20 years is one of the things I really truly enjoy is research and identifying insight and and, and making sure that insight can translate into action. And I just thought this is the perfect time and this is the perfect topic. And it's, it's bringing together all my skills and my passion. Beautiful. So Let's get in to your wonderful book, which I'm holding up here, Gen Z 360, which I've had the pleasure to read prior to our interview. And I already teased this question earlier in the interview, Hannah. Mm -hmm. You discuss in your book what you say are the most important skills that Gen Zers need today in the workforce. And while I personally was not surprised to read Mm -hmm. that these are soft skills, interpersonal Mm -hmm. skills, and not the hard skills, the technical skills, I was surprised by the why. Could you elaborate on what these skills include and also explain why soft skills will be especially important to Gen Zers as they enter the workforce in the midst of a digital revolution. So I think the digital revolution is probably the is is the answer. It's the why. And I think we have to think about it as a process that was taking place probably over a decade and just got accelerated over the last few years. Companies are changing constantly. And the core for competition is innovation. And when you are competing on innovation, just having technical skills is not enough. So what we are seeing right now is many organizations are looking for people who on top of the technical knowledge are able to solve complex problems, be creative in how they approach it because creativity is the basis for innovation, uh, that they are able to 
build relationships within and outside of the organization that they are able to influence. And I think the reason why all these things are very important is because the workplace is much less siloed than it was. And it's much more multidisciplinary. And today you can, you can start your career and work in marketing, but you rarely can complete a task without having to talk to supply chain and e-commerce team and design team and insight team and all these different teams have to have to come together and you not necessarily have decision authorities to tell people what to do so the only way you get what you need is by navigating those relationships within the organization and get people to help you to execute what you need to execute and those skills cannot be taught in a classroom. You really have to build that through experience. And this is really why I feel that there is, and you saw that in my book, there is a gap, a serious gap between what Gen Zers were trained to in schools and universities and what the job market is actually wanting them to have. And one of the things that I found super interesting is that when I actually did the survey, 36% of Gen Z told me that they don't feel that they were well, that their education has prepared them well enough to the real world. And, and these were undergrads. Yes, these were undergrads. And yes. it's less in my memory of what you wrote. It's mm-hmm. less to do with like, can you code? Can you write? Can you communicate? And more to do with life stuff. Like, can you take care of your finances? Do you know how to budget? Do you know how? Mm-hmm. Is that correct? I think that's, that's some of it. And that's really important. But I think in the workplace context, it's really about people and working in a team and collaborating and, and being able to listen and being able to innovate and, and, and identify, you know, identify opportunities for your company. And I think that's the kind of things that, that Gen Zers do feel they like. And I think they, it, it is true. Their, their feeling is not grounded in reality because, you know, if you look at many studies that are done interviewing business leaders, business leaders said the same thing. They don't feel that they get the talent that comes from university today is not really well equipped to deal with the 21st century workplace. Everyone is raving about their technical abilities. Yeah, they can code, they study engineering, and sometimes even, even students, and, and I met many Gen Zers who told me that they study, uh, they are in uh, liberal studies uh, and study humanities, but then as they get closer to finding the job, they take uh, certificates in data analytics or in coding or in things that have more kind of practical aspect to it. But nobody is actually teaching the soft stuff. Actually, in my experience, I met a couple. I've met so many Gen Zers as well because of the work that I do. I met two young women who had majored in English literature, both of whom taught themselves to code by watching YouTube videos. Absolutely. That blew my mind. Yes. is initiative. And I would think, Hannah, the flip side of having grown up 
during so much change, constant change in their lives, that their mindset is one that is adaptable to change. Absolutely. I think this is the biggest asset that Gen Z is bringing to the workforce, to the workplace. Because if you think about it, you know, as a, as a former management consultant, I can tell you that the biggest challenge ever is, is never the analysis or getting the answer of what the solution. It's actually implementing change in a big organization because human nature is so strong and there is always such a big resistance to change. And here we go, we have this new generation and they're like, whatever. They kind of got used to change. They, they know that that's what life is about. It's change. And I think they're much more adaptable. And I think it's a very, very big asset for companies to build on. And unfortunately, right now, we are seeing many companies are really missing the opportunities with Gen Zers. You, you read a lot about Gen Zers leaving the workplace. Uh, only after six months in, in the job. And I think that that's really unfortunate because we are running a risk with Gen Z of really repeating the mistakes we did with millennials. And, uh, you know, millennials came right after the recession and there were no jobs. They were taking whatever they come their ways and then they accepted lower comp compensation. And then they started to change jobs every two or three years. And what happened, we labeled the millennials as being disloyal. But actually, it's totally wrong. Millennials are not disloyal. Millennials just behave in the most rational way to maximize the opportunities that are available to them. And the way to do that was to change jobs every two years. And I think it's a big, it really should act as a warning to organizations today that hire Gen Z. Is One is how do you onboard this new generation and make them comfortable in the workplace? And please, please don't compromise entry-level compensation because this, this is a generation that is willing to stick around, is willing to be loyal. And if we don't give it to them, we will just end up with the same with the same behaviors that we've seen before. And that, that really would be bad. In your book, Hannah, you note that Gen Zers, when they're compared with previous generations, they appear to have the highest levels of academic achievement mm-hmm. with the highest college enrollment rates. That's right. And you cite a Harris poll that shows that for two-thirds of them, their motivation behind all that hard work is for their college degrees to provide them with financial security. How is that affecting where they want to work and the kind of work that they want to do? Yes. Yeah, so, so basically, it's, it's very true. Everybody's flocking into tech and engineering because they believe that that's where the biggest opportunities, that's where the biggest opportunities are. And as I said before, if if they don't study that, they try to go and teach themselves new skills or tech certificates in all sorts of topics that help them that. And this is to show that the financial security aspect of this generation, it is so fundamental to who they are. And they will do everything they can to secure that future. So it's fields of education. So what do they choose to study? Then it's the kind of companies that they want to go to go to and and then how they think about savings and spend and spending. 
And you feature an interview in your book that you did with the CEO of a company called Jobs Mall, J-O-B-Z Mall, which connects young job seekers to employers through a kind of a virtual shopping mall. Yes. And this CEO said that Gen Zers tend to be more interested in the high profile tech companies Mm -hmm. or consumer brands. Yes. Much more so than the lesser known companies, which actually make up 90% of the labor force. Yes, it's very true. And and that was actually a super insightful uh, point that he made. And I think this is something that Gen Zers who are listening to this podcast should take into account. It's, it's very natural to go and look for companies that you know from your daily life. We all have Kellogg cereal on our shelves and, oh yeah, you know, I can go and go and look walk for, for Kellogg. Or we all know Google and Facebook from our daily lives. So it's very easy. But I think what is important for students to understand is that there are so many industries that perhaps are less known and they can provide you with great opportunities, financial and otherwise, such as you can have an opportunity to have meaningful roles already from the start. And you can have, you can have opportunity to grow and learn new skills that you not necessarily have just out of college. And, and those industries are just not sitting at the top of, of the list. I mean, to give you, to give you one example, um, right now, this company is very, is very well known. It's called Regeneron. And they came up with the antibodies for the vaccine. And they became very, very well known in the, in the context of the global pandemic. But before that, Nobody really heard much about them. And I met a student who was considering a job there in their manufacturing. And he was like, I just don't know. I want to work in pharma or biotech, but nobody knows about this company. And I was like, but is it really what's important? You have to look at the role itself and what it offers you. And then he ended up working there and he feels so proud that they were in the forefront of literally saving the world with their technologies and with their innovation. So, so I think it's very important for the young people who are listening today, be open-minded because sometimes we so want something. And it's just like when I was in, in my, during my MBA program, I, I was so focused on becoming a management consultant that I just didn't want to look at anything else. And then when I finally looked at anything at everything else, I felt like I compromised. I didn't, I don't do what I'm doing. And then that turned out to be an amazing job. And not only I ended up in managing, managing, management consultant anyway, it's just that you have some time to have to take a leap of faith and kind of go with the flow instead of being frustrated about what doesn't work, see what works. And, and sometimes the opportunities that can come your way are wonderful and they're going to take you into places and you're going to meet amazing people and it's going to be very rewarding experience. A hundred percent. And I love the Regeneron example. Are there other industries Regeneron, of course, being in the pharma industry. Mm -hmm. Are there other industries outside of tech that you think are being overlooked that 
Gen Zers should explore because the truth is job functions, communications, marketing, consulting, finance, research exist in just about every single industry out there. That's right. And I would say, you know, I would say the pharmaceutical industry is a very big industry, but within that, there are sub-segments like small biotech companies that are doing amazing, amazing things could be, could be interesting. Again, the consumer goods industry is very, you have all the big names, but one of the things that happened in this industry over the last, I don't know, 10 years, there are so many challenger brands that came and they're doing great things in environmentally and they're creating healthy food and they have great missions that actually resonate with this generation. And I think it's worth looking into some of these brands. And again, I'm not suggesting go to a startup because I know Gen Z don't like startups. They want something stable that help them to feel secure financially. But there are already companies that are mid-sized companies that can deliver on that promise and give you great uh, career opportunities. So I would say in the consumer, but I would say also in the non-profit world, there are some really interesting, there are big non-profit organizations that are very well funded and they are looking for talent, people who share their mission and willing to do good in the world and be part of that delivery of the mission. So again, just be open-minded. Fantastic advice. So before we wrap things up, Hannah, I just want to pivot very quickly to a few of my boilerplate time for coffee questions that I try to ask all of my guests. And the first one is, what is the best career advice you've ever received? The best career advice I got was from a partner in my consulting firm who really mentored, he, he was really a, a good mentor to me. And I was extremely, extremely competitive. And I wanted to do everything fast. And I wanted to tick all the boxes. And I, I was like, I'm going to go from associate to manager in one year. And I'm going to do this. And I'm going to be a partner by the time I'm eight years with the company. Which all things kind of, and he always say, you know, like, just slow down. You got to enjoy what you are doing. You can't just be under that pressure to achieve all the time. And it was very hard for me to hear that uh, advice. And I, because I kept on pushing and pushing and being competitive and trying to achieve. And in the hindsight of time and wisdom, I think it's the best advice I ever got. And it's the best advice I would give to other people. You should not put time constraints on achievement. You have to enjoy what you are doing. And enjoying the journey is as important as arriving at the destination as much as it sounds so cliche, but it's so true in the career context. Because in hindsight, I'm just like, I killed myself to kind of be the first in everything I do, get, get to that milestone as fast as possible. And when I look back, it's just like, it was not really worth it. I relate to that so much, <laughs> Hana. For so much of my professional journey, I only looked up. Yeah. I have to ask you, are you an, are you an oldest child by any chance? I am. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. We found found a reason. (laughs) Yes. How many children in your family? Five. Okay. I'm the oldest of four. So very, pretty, pretty similar. Yeah. Yes. There's something about 
the oldest children. I think, you know, we desperately want our parents to be proud of us and, true. you know, get their attention and all of this. So it's I absolutely true. I have a lot of empathy and also very similar takeaways to you. Yes. Now, the second to last question, mm -hmm. could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Maybe, and it's hard to say it, failed, right? Or screwed up. But the most important thing here, Hannah, is how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. And the reason that I asked this question is that I want our young listeners to appreciate the fact that even those who are incredibly successful have had times when they struggled. And in fact, that is part of the journey. So often our failures become stepping stones to our future success. Absolutely. And, uh, and I actually alluded to some of these uh, occasions. One was I was completely obsessed about becoming a doctor and I was unsuccessful in my applications. And that basically forced me to think about, okay, what else I want to do? And I found the answer. And that answer was more right to me than the doctor answer. So I think that's one example. I think the other example is when I was in business school and I so wanted to end up in management consultant and it just did not happen for all the reasons. I was pretty shattered by it. Because I'm like, you know, I worked so hard in school, I have good grades and still like this is really unfair that just because of my passport or my language skills, I actually cannot do what I want to do. And, you know, and on the other hand, the minute I opened my heart to other things and I got this job uh, with the Israeli tech company, I found myself marketing digital photography to photographers all around the world. And that was in 1996 when we didn't have cameras here. These were professional cameras, system that were sold for 50 or $100,000 for two professional photographers. And here I am meeting all these famous photographers and working with them on moving from analog to digital. And just like, there were days that I were like, I can't believe that. I can't believe my luck, you know? And, and when I totally relaxed about the whole thing and I forgot about management consultants, management consultants knocked, knocked at the door. So I think you just have to have that faith that even if you fail and you didn't get what you wanted, you can always correct. You can always have other opportunities because when one door closes, another one opens and you've got to remember that because it's, it's really what life is about. Such a beautiful sentiment. Final question. If you could go back to Tel Aviv University and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Hannah, what advice would you give yourself? I would say just relax. I would say that would be number one, kind of don't be so intense about achieving and enjoy everything else around you. I would say that would be one, one thing. And I guess that's, that's the main thing. 
I think that's a perfect note <laughs> on which to end. Hana is the founder of Gen Z Planet. It's a research, speaking, and advisory firm helping leaders all across sectors and industries to prepare for the next generation of culture creators, employees, and consumers. And she is also the author of the wonderful new book, Gen Z 360, Preparing for the Inevitable Change in Culture, Work, and Commerce. Hannah, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was terrific. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.